gets. Once you start scouting, it's like a disease. It gets in your body. You're infected with it. You're tuned in to the Infectious Scouting Podcast with your hosts, Russell Landy and Rick Saratello. Oh, we can't stop. We won't stop. It's the Infectious Scouting Podcast with your host, R.I.C. in the place to be, Rick Saratella, telling it like it is when it comes to the NFL draft since 2002. It's what we do, and it's my favorite time of the week because my co-host, Russell Landy, joins me. Two decades of scouting experience, NFL, CFL, XFL, of course, starting out with the UCLA Bruins. The man has seen perspectives from the front office, from the field scouting, from every angle you could possibly imagine and he joins us each and every week as we count you down to the 2020 NFL Draft Las Vegas style. This is our sixth episode now as we crank through the season. We did a couple of uh, preseason preview shows. We've been recapping each week of college football action, kind of previewing some prospects for the action ahead on the upcoming weekend. So Uh, We appreciate everyone coming back for the rodeo. And those of you who are new for the show, hey, like it, subscribe it, share it, comment on it. Uh, We're here each and every week. And, of course, you can check out Russ Landy at RussLandy.com. He also teaches the Sports Management Worldwide Football GM and Scouting course. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the show. But let's first welcome in the man, the myth, the legend. How are we doing, Russ? What's going on, my man? Uh, we're just, you know, moving and grooving through the season. I can't believe a, a month of college football action already in the books. And, uh, you know, uh, red shirts occurring, injuries happening. We'll talk more about that. But the uh, the big board is definitely moving and shaking, my friend. Well, there's no question. And I got to tell you, as I'm hearing you intro me and you mentioned CFL, XFL, NFL, I'm thinking, so what's next? I mean, I'm with Rick. I mean, that's there's nowhere else to go. But I'm thinking if I want to get more titles on there, I either got to jump in and go over to Germany, stop in at the German Professional League when I go over there in October, or I got to find a way to get involved in this lingerie football league so I can add more leagues to my bio. Because if I don't do that soon, someone might catch up. Hey, there's, there's where there's a league, there's the Russ will be there. So, hey, That's what I'm hey, talking about. Hey, I know you'll be at that combine out in Germany now for the NFL is doing international. I mean, we're coming prospects worldwide nowadays. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, that's something the NFL knows they have to, especially when you see these rugby guys coming over every year, different guys being recruited by the schools for track and field. They get thrown on the football field that are coming from not just Canada, but Europe. So, yeah, the NFL realizes even if it doesn't bring in a lot of players, just to get the name of the NFL and publicize it more in these other countries, it's huge, and especially huge for the long-term development of football outside America. If you want to see leagues in other countries, you have to at least go to those other countries and show that there's an interest in football in terms of their players to get those countries to really have an interest in really developing their programs. No doubt. And, you know, as the XFL 2.0 gets ready to relaunch, I can't help but to imagine and fathom the kind of popularity that a World League would now have, you know, back in the day, I really enjoyed the World League. And I feel like, you know, it might have been two decades too early because if there was a World League now, I believe that it would be thriving. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think 
at the time, the NFL owners, obviously, they were losing about $35 million a year 20 years ago when they decided to pull the plug on NFL Europe. I think, obviously, it would have kept losing money for uh, uh, probably another decade. But I think by now, you'd be talking about a profitable venture. I think you might even have two or three or four more teams playing over there. And imagine the developmental players that would now be playing in the NFL, quarterbacks that might have needed two or three years, guys that just couldn't find that home. Or a guy like Josh Johnson, who's bounced around the NFL for what? Seems like 20 years and 16 teams at this point. Imagine if he'd gone to a team and been able to start for two straight years over there. All of a sudden, this guy might have actually come and found a home and been in one city for eight or ten years as maybe a top-end back of quarterback. So there's no doubt that league would have, if it had been able to survive financially for about five or ten more years, it would be making money now and I think really assisting the NFL in developing young players. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the reason for the collapse or the discontinue of the world league was because of the cost and yeah you you mentioned 35 million dollars a year that the league was losing i would beg to kind of look at it in a different way and say hey it would have been a million dollar investment annually by nfl owners to uh produce the minor league system but as you know uh, the NFL is a bottom line business. The owners are, are, you know, looking to make money every which way. They don't want to lose money. And uh, as far as they're concerned, Russ, the NCAA is a free minor league system, right? Oh, there's no question. I mean, and it was the same because when you looked at it, it was sort of ironic in that all the owners, I shouldn't say all, many of the owners did not want to continue it because the reality is you don't get to become a, a billionaire by just wasting money and losing money. So then a lot of the owners are like, hey, I don't need to w- to spend the money because the NFL just keeps growing and growing. Why are we going to invest in something when it's not going to really affect our profit margins in terms of making more money long-term? But I can tell you, every coach in the league, every GM, they wanted that league to keep going because even if it only produced four or five guys that made active rosters and contributed each year, that's four or five guys, A, that you didn't have to go search and stick, scrounge the streets for. They're probably better prepared when they get to your team. So, every, And it increases the roster from the bottom up. So trust me, everybody on the team side in terms of coaches, GMs, they all wanted it. Just came down to a money decision. It's a shame because there are a lot of good players like Kurt Warner that came out of that league um, and, and many more lesser guys that came in and played seven, eight years as sort of backup guys, special teams, playing a role on a team. But Unfortunately, it just wasn't meant to be because of the money they were losing at the time. And the last point I'll make, and maybe it's coming from the NFL side or the owner side, I'm not sure, but you look at the amount of money that the NFL is pouring into the international advertising and presence and everything that it all entails now and playing games overseas. So this would have been a grassroots marketing type of uh, kind of way to grow the sport overseas. But, hey, uh, we're back at it again here talking college football in the United States. We'll talk more about that international combine in, in Germany in October. But uh, the man at Russ Landy, make sure you follow him on Twitter, always delivering NFL draft nuggets year-round, 24-7, 365. And we're going to take a look back at last week's action, Russ. We previewed it. We talked about that big-time Georgia-Notre Dame matchup, and the Bulldogs uh, went into halftime trailing there, 10-7. I, I, I thought this was going to be a closer game than those anticipated. However, the Bulldogs, uh, you know, pull it out. 
keep their championship hopes alive and uh, a lot of mixed performances in this matchup. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, you, when you look at Jake Fromm, I mean, he's obviously the biggest name going there. Uh, I think the first half, he just sort of said, where is he? What's he doing? He made a few plays, but you weren't jumping up and down that this is the guy. The second half, you saw him do some things that made it made you say, okay, now I get somewhat why teams are sort of excited about him. But I will say, I don't think he played at the level in that game, even in the second half, to where teams are saying, hey, this is the guy in the country. There's a lot of other guys he's got to beat out at this point that he's in competition with. I thought he did some good things in the second half. He made some good throws. But I don't think he played so well that he cemented himself as an elite top guy going forward. He, he he has to play better and more consistently, in my opinion, to, to really entrench himself as a guy that realistically should be considering coming out. No, I agree. And, uh, you know, he was efficient, but he wasn't elite. And I think that's what you're exactly. looking for when you're looking for a franchise signal caller. Now, a couple guys, we talked about Chase Claypool, the Canadian-born Chase Claypool. He had a touchdown reception in this game. So, uh, you know, had a chance to kind of uh, catch the, the attention of NFL scouts and attending six catches, 66 yards. The safety, Aloha Gilman, I thought played really well. He was all over the field making plays. Um, anybody else in this game you want to discuss, Russ, uh, before we move on? You know, I'll just say, I mean, I was going to bring up Clay Claypool later because I think this coming week, his matchup against Virginia is really interesting. But he's a guy I think NFL people – they're intrigued by. They're trying to figure out where this guy fits. So I think the rest of the season is going to be big for him. I was impressed overall. I think when you look at this game, it shows you that despite what Notre Dame does in terms of bringing in recruits, the talent on Georgia's side of the ball, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's really amazing the athletes they have from their young freshmen all the way through. They are loaded. I was really impressed just with the speed of their team. There were situations where Notre Dame looked like athletically they were going to make a big play, and instantly Georgia was right there defensively, and th- that big play was gone. So I, I just there was no one player. I just thought overall, I think you saw a lot of athletic traits in those Georgia players that really, really stood up and showed. Man, they are rec- they continue to be right there with Alabama recruiting wise. Agree. They've done a wonderful job recruiting there. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up that Virginia-Notre Dame matchup because I have that circled on my calendar as well. We'll talk about uh, week number five matchups towards the back end of the show. I want to focus a little bit more on some of the things that transpired this past weekend, including, I don't know if you saw this report, dozens, dozens and dozens of scouts, evaluators, and GMs at that Oregon-Stanford game uh, of course, the uh, Ducks coming out on top 21-6. to six. And these West Coast matchups, man, I'll tell you, they are hard to predict. Uh, whether it's the Utah, they, they really are. The Arizona State, the Colorados. I mean, these games are, are coin toss matchups. But what I found intriguing was two GMs, uh, Kevin Colbert and Chris Greer, in attendance at this game. Obviously, the Dolphins all possibilities open at the quarterback position. Uh, Josh Rosen may be looking better than a Ryan Fitzpatrick are either the answer. They're still finding that out. And of course, with this whole big Ben Roethlisberger injury, whether he comes back or not, I would imagine the Steelers are going to take another quarterback unless you believe Mason Rudolph is the guy 
your thoughts with Colbert and Greer in attendance for Herbert this past week? You know, first, I think it, it, this is a great situation when you look at Colbert to be in. I mean, most likely Big Ben's going to come back and probably play another year or two at a at a good level. We don't know if he'll be a lead anymore, but he'll at least be a good, solid, productive starter. And and, it give, and really, they're in just such a great spot because they're getting a year to look at Rudolph. They're going to get to watch him the whole rest of the year and, get, and really get a feel for him. And Kevin can go out there, and I'm sure scouts have already reported in on what they've seen on the era, a bear, but this is a chance for him to see him live, get a chance to get a feel for him, how he throws, how he does in pressure under tough situations. I think it's a great opportunity for him. For Chris Greer and the Dolphins, I mean, this is just one of those situations where, yeah, I mean, it's great to go look at him 100%. And getting a top quarterback, whether Rosen develops and becomes that guy or they end up having to go get a guy like a bear, I don't know. But the problem is, you look at that roster, man. There's a lot of holes that they have to fill, and I know they're building draft capital, but I, I, I will look at it and think, okay, so say they get a bear, that team is still going to be miserable next year, and maybe a bear ends up with sort of a, a, the old the David Carr thing where he literally has a good football knocked right out of him before, he can, before the team can get good. That's what I would be petrified of if, if I'm a quarterback going to Miami next year or if I'm Josh Rosen. Are they just going to punish me so much with hits that I'm not going to be the player I could be two years from now? We are speaking with Russell Landy, longtime NFL scout and very well respected within the scouting community for his quarterback analysis. So while I have you on the line here, Russ, I'm curious to know, obviously it's early one game of work for Rosen in Miami. And I think maybe one or two games for Rudolph uh, really to evaluate, but, uh, initial impressions, at least anyway, for those two quarterbacks, where do they stand in terms of NFL future? You know, I think with Rosen, I mean, I think you saw some positive things. I mean, after last year, which was obviously an unmitigated disaster, not all his fault by any stretch of the imagination because he happened to be in Arizona where the team was literally just sinking below him. But, I mean, I thought you saw he threw some strikes in the game, which I don't think anybody's ever questioned Josh's ability to throw the ball, but he made some throws with guys around him. He made some really accurate throws into tight windows. Um on a team that obviously is not particularly good, to say the least. I think he played with that poise and that sort of confidence of, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to find a way to win. Now, he didn't, but he, I think, showed more than I thought he would. Rudolph, there were some ups and downs. I saw him make a few good plays. But overall, I, when I watched him, I just didn't see that – confidence, that willingness to stand strong and rip and drive those throws. And it seemed like that wavered throughout the game. Um, there were, he would make one good throw, and then he'd go two or three series without really doing anything that made me think, yep, this guy's a future starter. Um, I just came away a little bit like disappointed, even though I know it's his first real sort of step up this year where he got an opportunity to be the man from start to finish. Just didn't think he played as well as I'd hoped. I know that they almost won the game, but statistically, they got dominated. They were in the game because of five turnovers. It wasn't like he was moving them up and down the field all game. I was just he, – he didn't wow me is probably the best way to say it, whereas Rosen made some wild plays and, and at least gave me, as if I'm a Dolphins fan, a little hope that, you know what, maybe we don't have to, quote-unquote, tank for Tua or tank for this guy. But this Rosen guy, there might be something there. This guy could be the guy. Well, I, and I agree with you. I would like to see more of it. And, uh, you know, obviously the Dolphins and Steelers, just two of 
I would say at least half a dozen teams around the league that are going to be in search of a future franchise signal caller. So we'll be monitoring that all season long here on the Infectious Scouting Podcast. Again, each and every week we break it down with Russ Landy, Rick Saratella here. Infectious Scouting Podcast. Give it a follow. Give it a subscription. Give it a comment. And make sure you follow Russ at RussLandy.com. One last QB note this week, Russ. I don't know if you saw it, the, the quarterback down at Houston, the Eric King. There's been a lot of banter amongst uh, scouts that I've spoken to, at least a lot of varying degrees in terms of what he is at the next level. Some seem to think that he could work at quarterback. Others feel uh, that he needs to switch to the wide receiver position. And I'll just say this before I get your opinion. You know, I've always had a philosophy or a belief that, hey, show me that you can't do it. And then we'll explore the alternative. And that goes for, you know, whether it was Lamar Jackson, Trace McSorley, Taysom Hill, Tyrone Swoops. Hey, you played quarterback at a high level in college. Show me that you can't do it. And then we'll explore the other positions. But him now suffering the injury, the new NCAA rule, he'll be eligible to redshirt. He's already announced that he'll return to Houston for another season. Uh, First off, your thoughts, smart decision, right decision, and also how do you view his NFL future? You know, first off, the the comment you made about make them prove themselves at the position, I agree 100%. I think most NFL teams, at least the smart ones, they believe that. They they want a kid who, if a kid's been a two-year starter at guard, um, they're going to play him at guard in the NFL initially unless there is some uh, apparent reason whether it's physical limitations or maybe mental limitations, that they can't play him at the position he played in college. Most teams prefer to keep a guy at the same spot because the chance of success is much higher. Um, with the quarterback, yeah, I mean, whether you mentioned some great examples, Trace McSorley, Taysom Hill, Lamar Jackson, these are guys that I think 10, 15 years ago, you'd be talking about guys that probably would have come in and maybe been sort of that sort of jack-of-all-trades backup quarterback, but also – they would have been a guy that was playing another position primarily because you're just, I mean, Antoine Randall is a perfect example of a guy that did all the things those guys did in college and instantly was playing receiver in the NFL. So it's a very different world now. Um, I think this kid, I understand what he's doing. Um, I think the fact that he's getting his degree is hugely valuable because there's so many guys that come out, forget about that part of it because it is so apparent. And I think, when, when you have people that have work, worked in the league and been around it long enough, is most players coming out of college are not going to have careers in the NFL long enough to really make life-changing money. So if this kid gets the opportunity to get his degree, he can work all offseason, learning this offense, continuing to get better at a new offense because Dana just took over that program. The team is going to take its lumps this year, but the team should be better next year because they'll have a whole new batch of recruits that are recruited for this system. They'll be more used to this system because they'll play it in a year. So I get some of the disappointment people have about this, but I think for the kid making this decision, I think it shows he's mature. And while some people may say he's being selfish, I get that. But let's also remember, Dana isn't winning this year. He's not, that team was not going to be a dominant team that was going to go to the college football playoffs. And this kid, I think, views it as, hey, I have to look at myself and I have to look at really the realistic opportunity of this team to be highly successful this year. I understand. I understand what he's doing. I don't have a problem with it. I need to see more. 
for me to be able to say this kid's definitely going to play quarterback, but I know I've seen enough to where I want to evaluate him as a quarterback first before I immediately peg him to another position. Because it's so hard, and you know this, Rick, you've been doing this for so long, it is so hard to find a quality quarterback that you don't just push a kid to receiver until he proves to you that he can't play quarterback. Yeah, I mean, listen, we saw it with the national media just a year ago and saying, hey, Lamar Jackson's a running quarterback. He can't pass. Well, give him, t- give him some time to develop, and look what he's doing this year. Uh, it's almost night and day. So one other guy I've got to pick your brain about because I saw this report by the Alabama newspaper uh, the other day, and they did a poll uh, – with uh, executives and, and front office people and scouts around the league. They pulled seven uh, NFL, you know, evaluators. I don't, they didn't mention if they were GMs or scouts, but seven, you know, representatives from seven different organizations and polled them about the draft stock of Dylan Moses, who uh, was a consensus first round pick in our, you know, NFL draft Bible, our, our uh, 2020 prospectus. We had a first round trade on this kid. He suffers the ACL injury before the season even begins. And, you know, the consensus here with the poll of the seven different teams, most of them felt he was still a early second or round three guy. A couple of guys off the record even saying that they would view him as an early second or top 50 selection. With that being said, Russ, he's a junior. He can come back. You know, Nick Saban at Alabama always preaches if you're a first-round guy, go. But what's the risk-reward here? Does he risk coming back, re-injuring, uh, suffering the injury again, dampening his credit, or does he, you know, just go for the gusto and you know, take the money while he can still recuperate some of that draft stock, maybe not as high as the first round, but still a potential top six selection? Well, you know, I, I personally look at it and say this is a kid that he really needs not only the advice of NFL people. I mean, they need to get a few teams to really look at his film and really be able to offer true insight into, hey, this is how you played in 2018. This is realistically where we think you would have been drafted if you hadn't been injured. Then he needs to go to a guy like James Andrews or one of these elite medical guys at the NFL Trust and get that knee checked out every which way so they know, hey, do we think this ACL is going to be a traditional ACL where there's no other further damages, the rest of his knee looks sound and he should be fine for returning to the field and not having long-term problems? Or is this a situation where they're saying, you know what, we're seeing, we see a lot of other things going on in that knee where there's major problems. He needs to get that information presented to NFL teams because if he comes back clean and the NFL teams say, yeah, on film, you were a first-round pick or a second-round pick, and now we have this medical info that says you're going to be fine, then to me, he's got to come out because you can't risk going back to school. The odds of any player in college suffering an ACL are about 3%. Once you suffer one, your odds are almost 25% of suffering a second one. So you can't go back and, and, and take that chance. And if you have medical clearance, and I don't mean just medical clearance to get on the field, but you have a, a well-respected doctor showing NFL teams saying, hey, everything I'm seeing says no long-term ramifications, his knee is sound, blah, blah, blah. 
You got to come out. Now, the opposite side is NFL teams come back and say, hey, we look closely at the film. Here's what we saw in Nick. And they tell Nick, hey, we think this kid really is a fourth, fifth round player that was getting a lot of hype. He's coming off a knee, probably should return to see if he can improve his stock because he's probably not going to get drafted because we don't really see him as a great prospect and he's coming off an ACL. So he really has to get the medical info and get true evaluations. And Nick is able to do that because of his relationship with so many people in the NFL because he's beloved for the access he gives to NFL scouts. I'm sure he could get some veteran NFL people to evaluate this kid and give him an honest, true, like sort of look at where he would be drafted. Well, hopefully Dylan Moses is listening to the show because it sounds like invaluable advice to me, and we appreciate the insight and perspective from Russell Landy each and every week here on the Infectious Scouting Podcast. We're going to take a look ahead at the upcoming matchups this weekend, but before we do, Russ, uh, anybody else this past week catching your eye, anybody uh, prospect-wise that you want to discuss? You know, a few guys. Firstly, I watched that Washington-BYU game, and I got to tell you, everybody out west, I mean, they're all talking about Justin A. Bear, and then there's the tank for Tua and Jake Fromm. I'll tell you what, people are going to have to start looking at this Jacob Easton kid. I mean, his mechanics, his ability to get that ball out in a heartbeat, his ability to make NFL throws into tight windows with both pace, with accuracy, with touch. I mean, he made some throws in that game. Now, he wasn't perfect, but he made some big league NFL-style throws that a lot of guys don't have the ability to just physically make. He's a guy that teams, if you're in the quarterback market and this kid decides to come out, you're going to have to seriously take a look at this kid and consider him in that group of the elite guys because physically, now I haven't sat down and graded six or seven games, but physically what he did in his fourth game being at the school there after transferring he made some throws and did some things in terms of getting out of the pocket I mean he really impressed me I'll also mention even though Michigan obviously got their head kicked in and sort of Wisconsin showed them who, who the real big dog in the conference is right now with it's really Wisconsin Ohio State it's not Michigan Ohio State but Ronnie Bell the sophomore receiver um, only had two catches, but man, he showed you with those two catches and some other flashes during the game when he was able to gain separation. And he's got some potential. This kid's got a little bit of juice to him. There's something to watch in this kid going forward two years to say, you know what, this is a kid a year or two from now, depending on if he was to look as a junior or a senior to come out. There's something to this kid. He's got a little, a little bit of uh, talent that I like that I think he could be a guy that a year or two from now, we could be talking about him as a high draft pick if he continues to play at the level he did in that game. Well, very interesting. Uh, writing the name down so I can go back and rewatch that. You mentioned Easton at Washington, obviously a big buzz uh, coming out of high school, beginning his career at Georgia, now finally uh, materializing into the quarterback that we thought he would be. And I would uh, actually keep it right in state there. Uh, at Washington State because this Anthony Gordon, who, you know, is now leading the yep. league in, in passing under Mike Leach, nine nine touchdowns this past week for us. Um, you know, you saw you saw uh from the senior bowl and they lost. Yeah, just, just we talked about this last week, uh just when we thought Chip Kelly was dead, he rises up from the ashes like the Undertaker 
And, uh, you know, their quarterback, Dorian Thompson, who I had a chance to coach during my time out in Las Vegas, he also had five touchdowns and 500. Each quarterback threw for over 500 yards. But Nagy um, had the tweet this week that the QB battle between Gardner Minshew and, and Anthony Gordon was a very tight QB race. And now all of a sudden, this Anthony Gordon, we talked about nine air raid quarterbacks starting on Sunday this past weekend in the NFL. I have a feeling we could be seeing him participating in the senior bowl. Oh, I think you're 100% correct. I think especially when you look at the fact that a year ago, Minshew was basically, or a year and three months ago, Minshew was on the on the verge of basically being a GA in his final year at or his first and final year at Alabama before Mike Leach came calling last minute to bring him to Washington State. And he played so well and did so well at the Senior Bowl that he got drafted, be it late, but he still got drafted. And now he's starting in the NFL and doing a good job. Now it's first year, so you don't want to overhype it, but he's doing a good job. So this kid that just lost out on the starting job to Minshew a year ago is now starting in the same system, putting up ridiculous numbers. 100% this guy is going to be in consideration for the Senior Bowl, especially when you add in the fact that whether it's Tua or Fromm or Bear or Eason, all these guys are underclassmen. So for them to qualify to go to the senior bowl, they're going to have to graduate by December. I doubt that's going to happen. So, I mean, the, the quarterbacks that are seniors are going to be able to challenge this kid. There aren't that many. So I think, yeah, you nailed it right on the screws. This kid's going to be a mobile, and we're going to get a close firsthand look to see how he looks not only – compared to NFL guys that we've seen in the past. But just to Minshew from last year, try to get – it's a good baseline for a quarterback who played the exact same offense just one year before. And, you know, we're both at the Senior Bowl every year, Ross. I think one of the cool things about the sports management worldwide football and GM scouting course that you teach is that, hey, uh, there's an opportunity there to get out to the Senior Bowl and kind of evaluate players and pick our brains if you're lucky enough to graduate the course, um, the one lesson I would take away here, and, you know, it's easier said than done. Even after doing it for two decades, you know, you say, hey, the film is, what, 80% of your, you, you know, your, your resume. You know, we're going to give you a grade based on your film, at least 80%. And then we factor in some of the combine and some of the all-star games. But I go go back to this past year's senior ball. Um, Gardner Minshew did not have a great performance. And, you know, maybe I put too much stock into that. I think we dropped him from a mid-round grade to a late-round grade, which is where he wound up going. So maybe the NFL was guilty of this, too. But it's your last, you know, the last image, your last um, image of the player. And he struggled during that week in Mobile. And I think, you know, when you sign up for that sports management worldwide class, these are some of the lessons that can be taught and, you know, passed down to future scouts. Oh, there's no question. I mean, the reality is when you go to an all-star game and you and I have been going there for, it seems like 150 years, there's great things to be learned, whether it's watching a guy and just watching how he interacts with his teammates, how he takes coaching during practice, obviously the physical things for a quarterback throwing the ball, release quickness, his, his foot alignment, his bend in the knees, all the different things you want to see. But it's also a place where you have to be cautious. Because I could name off players, and you probably remember all of them. Adolphus Smith, Andre Caldwell, great senior bowls. Two of the greatest senior bowl weeks ever by any player. Chris Williams, offensive tackle. 
another great week of Senior Bowl. All three of those guys complete flops in the NFL. And then then you have other guys, Christian Ponder, perfect example. Even Jay Cutler was phenomenal down at the Senior Bowl. Mm -hmm. And then you put in other guys on the opposite side. Chris Johnson, the great running back, average week. Richard Sherman, horrendous week. So, I mean, yeah, there's enormous value in going down there for watching them be coached, just getting a physical feel for them, the interview process, how do they deal with teammates. But at the same time, you have to take a deep breath when you're there and not go overly crazy on what you see from three days of practice. I mean, Michael Sam was unbelievable the week he was down there. He was destroying people and had an MVP game, and he had two or three sacks. So yep. and it's not that Michael wasn't good enough to be in consideration to be drafted, but he was a dominant player that week, and he was just a guy when he became a professional. So, yeah, you're, you nail it right on the screws. Is there's enormous amount of things that people need to learn just to be able to begin the process, and that's what we try to do at SMWW. We're not going to take somebody, give an eight-week class, and all of a sudden they're going to leave the course, show that certificate, and boom, they get a job in the NFL. A, because it ain't going to happen. B, you're not qualified. You have to learn how to scout, learn how the process works. That's what you and I have been doing for 20 years, and you keep learning in this business. No one is ready after an eight-week course of scouting to step in and work in the NFL. And what the course really does is it teaches you the basics of organizational structure, the the very basics of scouting, and also the basics of how to make contacts and get a foot in the door somewhere in the world in professional football. And then from there, it's up to you, based on how good you are or what you do, to see if you advance or if you never do. Some people just aren't good enough, and you don't advance and never work in professional football. No, it's so true. You can't teach experience, and, uh, you know, I think it's invaluable. We're we're always looking for good scouts, future, you know, young up-and-coming scouts here at the NFL Draft Bible, first place we turn to. Sports Management Worldwide, so go to uh, SWW.com for that. And one last note from this past week before we move on to week number five, I will uh, report to you that I was in Pittsburgh for the Pitt Special. What a game. Uh, They come out on top last second play against UCF. Unbelievable game. Oh, my God. This was an incredible game. I've been fortunate enough to have been at some really thrilling games The the Kansas um, Boston College was another one, but UCF with championship aspirations, college football playoff intentions coming in as heavy favorites. Um, their offense faltered in the first half, and we mentioned, um, you know, the quarterback there at UCF, the freshman Dylan Gabriel, who I got to be honest, he looks like a micro fridge back there with the slingshot. I mean, he's just got a weird body frame. Uh, if you're a fundamental quarterback coach, hey, forget about it. Don't even look at this kid's film because his lower body <laughs> mechanics are all over the place. But he does something that works. And I actually wrote in my on-location scouting report, I actually wrote, you know, uh, the Dylan Gabriel throwing to Gabriel Davis. It's like, you know, watching Picasso paint the Mona Lisa. I mean, he just throws it up there. The kid just flicks the wrist. He's probably five foot ten, 180 pounds soaking wet. But he sling the football 60, 70 yards downfield. And this Gabriel Davis now, uh, I've been able to confirm, Russ, he is going to declare for the draft after this season. He's a year wide out, uh, six foot three, 212 pounds. 
and you know he just glides underneath the ball, and the and the defense knows it. And Pittsburgh, they've got some really good players in that secondary. Uh, Demar Hamlin, Dane Jackson, two other guys I profiled in my report. You know, Davis, even though they know the play is coming and they're ready for the deep ball, he just has a knack for positioning himself, fending off the defenders, almost like boxing them out where, you know, that, that six foot three height, he kind of just keeps them at, at bay where only he can make the play. And I got news for you. I've got a round two grade on Gabriel Davis. I wouldn't be surprised if he even can, you know, is in that first round consideration. Uh, but this is a very talented wide out. And, you know, other guys, no relation, no relation to uh, OJ Anderson. You know, I don't know what's going on. Jeff backfield, the running back by committee, they used three different backs. This guy was by far the most explosive, the most electrifying. He had an 87-yard punt return where, you know, he showed explosiveness, vision, speed. He ducked, he even twirled and ducked under a guy. I mean, agility and quickness. I don't understand why this guy isn't seen field more um, than a couple other guys. You know, I did, disc- I did uncover a prospect in this game. I'll get to that in a second. But Maurice French is a wide receiver. I had a chance to uh, cover a high school all-star game here in New Jersey and Maurice French was the game MVP, and you could just see, I mean, he was head and shoulders above the rest of these, these all-star game rosters. He's a, 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 a slot receiver who returns kicks, returns punts, but he's got that hard-nosed jersey mentality. He's hard to bring down after the catch. He's a problem. I think he's a, a late day three guy that's going to make a roster and stick at the next level. And then I will say this, Russ. I can't let all the the cats out of the bag. I got to keep some secrets here. But as you know, you received the the scouting uh, notebook. I uncovered a guy. uh, I gave him a fourth round grade. He went from walk on to a junior. You're just going to have to subscribe to the NFL Draft Bible uh, to get access to this information because it's really, really valuable stuff. So go to NFLDraftBible.com. We've got a promo code for all of our listeners, VIP Familia, all caps, VIP Familia. will save 20% off of the uh, all-access subscription. And then you'll receive not only is the prospect that's available for download right now, but you'll also receive our in-season on-location scouting reports. Uh, I believe that no other media outlet, uh, scouting games, in attendance, on location across the nation like the NFL Draft Bible. We're getting ready in a couple weeks to go out to our West Coast swing. We're going to be out there for two weeks, hit five games in a two-week span. So we're just really trying to conquer the entire country. If you want access to this information, I highly suggest you go and subscribe to it. So, with that being said, well, 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 firstly, there's no doubt people should be subscribing to your deal. There is nobody covering the country. I can promise you. And I, and I know Tom McShay. He's a great guy. I know Daniel Jeremiah, a great guy. Nobody is on top of it like Rick. And that's why if you want information, especially right now during this time of year, nobody is putting out detailed stuff about, hey, this guy at this school. And we saw these three players. We stopped by this D3 game because we were at Pitt during the day for the noon game. And we hit this D3 game at night. And here's three guys you got to be worried about because NFL teams know them. Nobody is on it like Rick. And the other thing I got to throw in there, UCF gets upset by Pitt, and people wonder why 
Smart people always say, don't bet. That's why Vegas has masterful, huge, giant buildings. Because how many people bet UCF and how much money did Vegas make this weekend of people losing their shirts, putting UCF on all their little trifecta deals and getting their butt kicked because nobody saw that coming. Yeah, well, that's a great point because my cousin works at the FanDuel Sportsbook here at the Meadowlands in Jersey. There was more action on UCF on Saturday than any other team. And she said the looks on people's faces in that sports book as that pit special, you know, they ran the Philly Dilly uh, Eagle special. They already got the shirts printed out in Pittsburgh now for the pit special. But she said the looks on people's faces, that play occurred. There was more money on UCF than any team on Saturday, which is a great point, Russ. That's why college football, to me, takes cake. I mean, every week is like a playoff elimination week. Now, UCF, I hate to say it, they've been eliminated. They're done. You know? And, yep, there's no chance know, of them being in the playoffs. That's it. So, great point. And I appreciate the kind words on the scouting analysis. I, I really think that, you know, there's a need for a draft side during the season. We're giving you a taste of the final product, the NFL Draft Bible, that'll be out on April 1st you're going to get a glimpse into the, the, the building process. We're assembling it as we go along here on our scouting trails. And, oh, the pilots are adding up, baby. So if you're an airline, if you're a car service, if you're a hotel out there and you want to get on board with a sponsorship, hey, hit us up, baby. RIC at NFLDraftBible.com. We'll pump you up right here on the podcast. Um, you know, <laughs> Russ Landy, Rick Saratella, and we take all comers here at the Infectious Lab Podcast. Hopefully, Infectious Lab will be back week to kind of break it down. This is what we do here. Uh, if you like the NFL draft and you love this podcast, week five, Russ. Uh, I've got a couple of notes here, games I want to highlight, but um, I'm curious to hear your take. It's a nice because we do have some Friday night lights this upcoming weekend. Penn State at Maryland and Arizona State at Cal. So the college football season uh, getting jump-started early with time key matchups here on the football docket. But who are some matchups or key players that you keep an eye on? You know, to me, there's, I mean, there's a lot. This, this is when the games every week now, there's five or six games between quality opponents, which it definitely makes watching on Saturday fun. But three games jump out to me as ones where I want to see prospects. Um, when I think about Minnesota playing Purdue, I mean, it's sort of, uh, sort of a, a two opposite ends of the spectrum. Tyler Johnson from Minnesota, thick bodied well-rounded receiver, great hands, tremendous route runner, not a dynamic athlete. He's a good athlete, but he's not that rare, special, freak of nature, 4-3 runaway from people. He reminds me a little bit of Keenan Allen in terms of guy that knows how to run his routes, gets open, is quicker than he is fast, has great hands, a great sort of feel for everything. And then on the opposite side of the field, you have true sophomore for Purdue, Rondo Moore who is that dynamic, special little athlete. Well, I don't know if he's going to measure more than 5'9 or 5'10 at the most, but when you see this kid out in space, if he gets a little bit of space, it's over. He can literally outrun everybody on the field. 
He can make guys miss. He has a natural sense for guys when they're coming up to try to tackle him. I mean, to me, that's a great chance. If you are a person that loves scouting, watch this game and see the dramatic differences between these players and try to figure out what it is that makes each one special. Because both these guys, in my opinion, they're both going to play on Sundays and potentially play for a decade. So I like both these guys. I'm excited to watch that game. Um, the other One of the two other games we mentioned earlier, Virginia Notre Dame, I can't wait to watch it. I mean, Virginia's got Bryce Hall, long linear cornerback. I think he's going to measure in the 6'1 range, maybe 6'2". He's got long arms. He actually plays taller than his height. Chase Claypool, the kid you mentioned, the Canadian kid, um, starting receiver at Notre Dame. This kid's a legit prospect, got good size, he's a good athlete. I think that matchup, now they won't go against against each other every snap. They'll get a bunch of reps. So I would be a good battle, a great challenge for Hall. Here, here's a, a very good receiver who knows how to play physical, who's a good athlete. This would be a good challenge for Hall to show that he can step up, deal with him, um, I think it's important for both guys. And the third game I'm interested to take a look at, and, and it's really just a one-guy look, it's really Mississippi State-Auburn. And the reason I'm interested in this game is I mentioned a week ago I had seen the Kansas State-Mississippi State game and how Kansas State's defensive tackles. Um, Deshaun, who, who's not a great prospect, but he's a good, solid, late-round guy, has sort of been an impact guy and made plays against Mississippi State. Well, Brown is one of the elite D-tackles in the country, if not the best one in the entire nation, potentially a top 10 or top 12 pick. I want to see if Mississippi State can handle him, or is he just going to be like dominating from start to finish, just blowing up the interior of their line? Because their line got beaten up by Kansas State. They couldn't handle the aggressiveness and strength of Kansas State. I want to see what they do when Brown is just attacking their center and their guards from different alignments every snap. I think it's going to be a great matchup and a great challenge for the Mississippi State interior guys to handle what I think is one of the preeminent interior defensive linemen in the whole country. Yeah, you know, Mississippi State has always got some big boys up front there on the offensive line. And you mentioned Derek Brown and also uh, earlier Rondell Moore. I mean, these are two what I call blue chip prospects, two guys I have pegged uh, to be future top 10 draft selections. In fact, Brown, who you mentioned, he was eligible this past year. I felt like he could have been a top 10, even a maybe top five pick if he did declare uh, so the Mississippi State matchup, definitely worth keeping an eye on. And you mentioned the Minnesota-Purdue game. And, you know, we talked so much here, Russ, about the international movement and some of these players from other countries oh, developing. Yeah. Keep an eye on this right tackle, Daniel Salali. And I'm probably butchering that name. I'm just He's from Melbourne. I have no idea to pronounce the last name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's from Melbourne, Australia. We talked about the influx of players coming from Australia. Usually they're punters, right? This is a yeah, exactly. six foot nine, six foot nine, four hundred pound starting right tackle. Okay. He's the biggest uh, player in college football in history. In it, wow. I didn't know that. And I know he came from the IMG Academy. I uh, had a chance to watch him a little bit last year. I was just so impressed with the athleticism for uh, just a gargantuous man of his size. He won't be eligible until the 2021 draft, but definitely keep an eye on this young man. I'm I'm intrigued for sure. Um, so we'll see how his development progresses. Um, 
you know, you, you know, one thing throw in there. I remember yeah. you you remember years ago, Aaron Gibson came out of Wisconsin. Went in the first round, he was got to plate at four hundred pounds at Wisconsin, and the NFL people kept saying, we just have to get him a 335, 340, and he'll be a superstar. Well, Aaron could never do that. He could never get that weight down. The key with this kid is not, he doesn't probably have to be 330 because he's 6'9", but teams are going to want to see, is he going to be able to at least be in good enough shape? And I don't mean in terms of that he's not in decent shape for a man his size now, but good enough shape to handle the athletes he's going to have to block in the NFL. Because at 6'9", you have to be somewhat nimble. You have to use those long arms. This kid has only played three years of football. I know a few NFL scouts have told me he's one of the more impressive guys just walking up on him because he's not your typical guy that's in the 380s, 390s, where it's just fat hanging everywhere. They say, he's just a man. He's just thick. Every inch of this human being is thick. And they said, when you walk up on him, you actually would guess he's in that 340 range because he's just solid. It's just the height plus the thickness that brings him up so high. I think the NFL team's going to be very intrigued to see where he can be a year or two down the road with more experience playing football. No, I, this is like one of the most interesting prospects in the land, in, in my opinion, and a four-star recruit coming out of high school. So, uh, you know, we'll be keeping tabs on number 78 there for uh, P.J. Flex and those Minnesota Gophers, yep. Daniel Fa'ali. Um, you know, USC at Washington, Ohio State at Nebraska, a couple of top 25 matchups to keep an eye on this week. But uh, we've crammed in a lot of analysis and prospects and players and matchups and info and tips. And, uh, boy, it's another hour of power in the books here with Russ Landy and Rick Saratelli. You got a parting shot for the people this week, Russ, before we go. The biggest thing I can tell you people is, I, mean, I kid you not, there is nobody, including myself, including Todd McShay, including Dan Jeremiah, nobody that is on the road grinding, going to games, and getting you information, not only live at the games, but each week. He's grinding. He's going to these small schools. He's finding out what's going on. There is nobody doing that that isn't working for an NFL team right now. So if you want to know where players are in the country, especially the guys that aren't being talked about at the big-time Power 5 programs, you need to check out the draft, Bobby. You need to be subscribing to this because Rick is the guy that brings you that information starting in June and going all the way through the end of the college season. Nobody is giving you the information he does, and then he just doubles up when we get to January, and it gets crazy. But there's nobody giving you the info that Rick gives you this time of year. So you need to dive on in. Hey, we're preaching the good gospel of the NFL Draft Bible since 2002. It's what we do, and we're lucky enough also to be affiliated with the NFLPA Collegiate Bowl this year. So, hey, I got news for you. If you haven't booked your plans for that All-Star Game event, January 18th, out at Pasadena, the historic Rose Bowl, it's going to be a week of evaluation. And I would love to have all you listeners out there come join us at the NFLPA Bowl. I will certainly make myself available at some point to you. And uh, we're looking forward to it. Make sure you check out RussLandy.com. Follow him on Twitter at RussLandy for the Infectious Scouting Podcast. That's six episodes in the books. Remember, we'll be back each and every week counting you down to that 2020 draft out in Las Vegas. I think it'll be the biggest one yet. And next week we'll have our biggest show yet. So thanks for tuning in. Until the next time, everybody. Once it gets into your stream, there's no vaccine. You've got the sickness, too.
Thanks for listening to the Infectious Scouting Podcast.